Well, welcome, everybody. Good to see you all again. So I missed the last couple of weeks. We've had a lot of baptisms and hospital calls, but I wanted to um, just a couple of announcements for today. Um, we began the season of Lent uh, this past Wednesday, which is uh, 40 days of preparation for Easter, which is the church's biggest celebration. Uh, it's bigger than Christmas, believe it or not. We love Easter. Uh, so um, as you've been hearing uh, at Mass, uh, a good way to engage the season of Lent is through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So uh, we'll be, the priests here are talking about that quite a bit uh, during Mass. I see a lot of you there. Um, but it's also sort of the home stretch of RCIA because when Easter finishes, the Easter Vigil Mass, which is, takes place the evening of March 30th, so the night before Easter, is when those who wish to be initiated into the church will be. So. Um, I just wanted to bring that up because we are kind of getting near the end of our CIA, and so you'll be getting some information from me, probably not this week, but next week, about um, just kind of asking where you are and your decision whether or not to become Catholic, either through baptism and or confirmation. Um, obviously, there's no pressure. We know some folks here here who are already Catholic, but um, that would be the day, is, is the, March, the evening of March 20th uh, is when uh, the sacraments would be made available to you. And we'll talk more about that as we get closer, but just wanted to put that in the back of your minds. And like I said, you'll be getting some emails from me about um, some of the sort of the requirements and things to think about and some of the information that I still need. One thing that you can start thinking about now is um, if you are wishing to be brought into the church, you'll need to um, ask somebody to be a sponsor for you. And a sponsor would be somebody who is a practicing Catholic um, and somebody who maybe has assisted you or inspired you or just been a friend to you on your own uh, journey into the church. Um, I know that some of you may not be from around here or maybe don't have any contacts like that. Um, if that's the case, we have a number of people here at the cathedral who are very, very happy to serve as sponsors for you. So the requirement, if you will, is that they be a practicing Catholic, that they can be there with you at the Easter Vigil Mass, which is uh, March 3rd, uh, uh, whatever, the night before Easter. Is that the 30th? Thir 31st. Yeah, March 30th um, at 8 o'clock that night. And then we have a practice that afternoon at noon, um, which it would be very helpful if they could be there for that as well. Um, so those would be, if they can't be, it's, it's okay, but it'd be helpful if your sponsor can be there uh, for that. So that's something to put onto your calendar if it's not there already. Noon on March 30th, we'll have a practice for the whole ceremony so that you're not going into it blind uh, that evening. Um, but just wanted to say, keep your eye on your email in the next couple of weeks because you'll be getting some information from me about all that, okay? Yeah. You can, yep, you can have somebody stand in for them. Yep, absolutely, good question. Cool? All right, I'm going to start us off with a prayer here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty Father, as we enter into this Lenten season, you give us the opportunity to embrace the cross of your Son so that we might be prepared to celebrate well his resurrection, which paves the way for our own future resurrection. We ask that through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, you might draw our hearts closer to you and into closer conformity with the most sacred heart of your Son, Jesus, who is Lord forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Larry? Thank you. you. Sure. Questions on anything? On baptism confirmation that we did last couple of weeks? So our topic for today is the, the Eucharist. So I, I'll be out of town next week, but Father Povis will take the class here. So we'll have class normally here at the same time. I just won't be here. Father will do it. And um, so today we'll look at the... Um, kind of the, the teaching of the church, the dogmatic part on the Eucharist. And next week, Father will walk you through um, the nuts and bolts, the liturgy, um, electionary, um, so you can follow better. All right?
So. <clears throat> so the Eucharist is the queen of the sacraments. So there are seven sacraments. Of them, baptism is the most foundational. It's the first. And the Eucharist is the crown, the queen, the summit. So we often say the Eucharist is source and summit. And the reason for that is because the other sacraments give us the grace of Christ, the grace. So all grace was won for us by Jesus on Calvary. For all men, for all time, from the beginning of the human race to the end. Um, and all the sacraments give us a share of his grace, but the Eucharist isn't just him giving us something, grace, but the Eucharist is himself giving us himself. So the Eucharist is unique in that it contains Jesus. We'll get to this in just a second. So um, the Eucharist is the queen. All right, when did Jesus institute the Eucharist? The Last Supper, right? The Last Supper was the last night of his earthly life, right? So he died on Good Friday, and this is what we call Holy Thursday evening, right? And um, so you'll, the Easter Vigil, when you come into the church, that'll be um, Holy Saturday night, right? And in that night is when he rose from the dead. So Holy, and that time we call often the triduum. You might hear that expression. It's a Latin simply for three days. So from Holy Thursday to Holy Saturday night. Um, that would be the, yeah, the holiest part of the church's liturgical year. And so it starts with the um, Holy Thursday with Jesus celebrating Passover, Jewish Passover, with his disciples. Right, so um, it was the last night of his earthly life, and it was also the most important Jewish feast of the year, and they coincided. And Jesus knew um, that they, he planned it this way, right? that they would coincide and that he would institute the Eucharist during, in the middle of the celebration of the Jewish Passover, and it would also make present the event that would happen the next day on Calvary. So he instituted the Eucharist to um, be a new Passover for the church, for the new covenant, but also to um, make present throughout the centuries what he was going to do the next day. Dying on the cross. All right, I'm, I'm going to explain that more as we go along. All right? So it wasn't by chance that he instituted the Eucharist on this particular day. Right? And so let's take first that it was the last day of his earthly life. And when you, if you know you're about to die and you're going to die the next day, and this is your last chance to be with the people that you love, you're going to want to give them, if possible, everything you have to give. In other words, you're, it's like your last testament. And so that's the Eucharist is how we have to think of Jesus' last gift to those whom he loved. And that was, yes, his apostles, but it's also us. He had, so we should think, Holy Thursday, Jesus celebrating Passover, he had everyone in this room in mind. Because he, so John introduces, it's in, so all the um, Gospels give us a section on the Last Supper. John's Gospel in chapter 13, starts out that section by saying, having loved his own who were in the world, that is, his friends, his disciples who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
He loved them to the end. And, and what does that mean? Well, what follows is the Last Supper, instituting the Eucharist, so that's loving us to the end, and then the Passion, dying for us. That's loving for us, us to the end. And the two go together. Okay? So this is like the last gift of, and the way you have to think about this, Jesus, what's his relation to the church? All right, we covered that a couple months ago. One, so one way, Scripture gives us two ways to think about it. We're the body, he's the head. But another way to think about it is he's the bridegroom, we're the bride. Right? And if you, that was um, the reading in um, the gospel a couple days ago, I think, um, in the first week of Lent, after Ash Wednesday, um, that Jesus um, is asked, why don't your disciples fast? And he says, well, they can't fast as long as the bridegroom is with them. But when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. All right, so he was speaking about himself as the bridegroom. All right, who's the bride? He's the bridegroom. The church, and that means every one of us. All right, so Jesus, as the bridegroom, all right, if you have, um, if death is always difficult, right? But it's especially difficult for spouses, right? Who've, and so Jesus knowing that he's about to die, wants to give to his bride who's just being or about to be born. So his bride, we could say the church, is, has lots of, you know, already came into being with his disciples. But his bride also comes into being by his dying for her. And so he wanted to give to his bride, which was going to continue to exist and grow and flourish till the end of time, right? And we're members of his bride. He wanted to give um, himself, all right, so let's just think about this. When I got the next, yeah, um, if you think about spousal love, what do um, spouses? Um, what are the different aspects of spousal love? One very important aspect is presence, right? So if you're married, you can't just you know live apart in different parts of the world. Um, that. Um, will not work well, right? Sometimes you have to do that because military service, you know, um, requirement of work or something like that. But generally, marital um, love requires that spouses dwell together. All right, Jesus continues to be our bridegroom. We're the bride. He wants to dwell with his bride. That is with each one of you and me, right? If we're his bride, then he doesn't want to, so we know he knew he was going to die, right, and be separated from his disciples. He knew he was going to rise from the dead three days later on Easter Sunday. But he also knew he was going to be taken out of the world, ascend out of the world 40 days later. And that's the Feast of the Ascension, 40 days after Easter. And that was 1990 years ago when he ascended out of this world. And if he had not instituted the Eucharist, he wouldn't have been in this world except through his, his divinity is in this world, right? His divinity is in this room, but his humanity is not in this room. And he's our bridegroom, not just in his divinity, but in his humanity. And so he didn't want his bride to be a widow, right? deprived of his presence in our midst. So this is the first reason he instituted the Eucharist, and it makes sense when he did it, right? It's the night before he's about to leave them, in death, right? But marriage is more than just living together, right? Marriage involves sacrificing for one another. 
And in fact, if you don't sacrifice your selfishness for one another, then the living together is not um, happy. Yeah. And so Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, perfectly sacrificed himself for the bride, right, on Calvary, the next day, so as to win for his bride every grace. And so that's the second aspect, we could say, of Christ's spousal love, sacrifice. But he also knew that he was going to be pretty much alone on Good Friday when he did this. Not entirely alone. Who was there? Anybody? Who was there on, on Good Friday? His disciples? John. John the apostle was there. Who else? Mary, his mother, and two other Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary of Clopas, right? So there were four disciples there. But was Peter there? No. Was, you know, any of the others, James, Andrew, et cetera, et cetera. And no, they weren't there. They ran away. And we weren't there either. Right? I wasn't there, and you weren't there. It happened 1,990 years too soon for us to be there. And Jesus wants us all to be there. So this is the second reason, and this is harder to understand, why Jesus instituted the Eucharist. He instituted the Eucharist so that we could be present at his act of giving himself to his Father for us and so that we can join in that offering. And I'll explain that more in a little bit. All right, but the idea is, uh, let me give an example. There's a great Saint Maximilian Kolbe. Did I give this example here before? No. And so Maximilian Kolbe is a, um, a Polish martyr who um, was a Franciscan friar, and he was taken by the Nazis because he had a public, his uh, monk, his uh, friars had a publishing outfit and they wrote things against the Nazis, right? Nazis invaded Poland. And so he was taken to a concentration camp and died there. But what, um, while he was there in the concentration camp, someone escaped. And when somebody escaped, what the Nazis did was they picked 10 people at random to be starved to death as to discourage people from escaping. And um, Maximilian Kolbe wasn't among those 10 people, but the 10th person picked was a married man who broke down crying. You know, my family, my wife, my children. And um, Maximilian Kolbe raises his hand and says, excuse me, I want to die in place of that man because I'm a priest, I don't have family. And the SS let him do it. And he was taken in place of that man and he got starved to death. Took a little while, I think, I don't know, 10 days or something. But yeah, he starved to death. And the man fell into a depression for whom he had died because this saint died for me, and who am I? And then he realized, ah, I've got, to, I've got to get out of here alive so that the memory of that act doesn't go into oblivion. And the, I don't remember how many years it was, but it was, this, I think it was a, a couple of years that he, anyway, he survived, and he lived to um, present the gifts in, um, for the beatification of Maximilian Kobe. Right? And he told the world about what had happened. All right. That's the best that human beings can do with a heroic act. Right? We can keep alive the memory. Jesus wanted to do something better than we can do. Right? He wanted not only to enable us to remember what he did, right? and that's part of um, the Mass, but more importantly, to participate in his offering. And the reason for that is this. Let me go back a slide. The Eucharist is a sacrifice. And we tend to, this, we, most Catholics, eh, 
if we do surveys of Catholics about the Eucharist, they come out badly, right? So in other words, um, few Catholic, fewer than, we, than should be the case, believe that he's really there, right? And, but it would be even worse if we were to do a survey about the sacrifice because we have a very shadowy idea about sacrifice because we don't see any sign. In other words, when Jesus was alive, when Paul was going around the Roman Empire and converting people to Christianity in the missions, and people knew what sacrifice was because every, in every place there were pagan religions that offered sacrifice to God. So let me say something about that. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is something you offer to God alone as a special honor to God, right? So this is why you can't offer a sacrifice to somebody who's not God, like, I don't know, a demon or an idol. Um, it's a special honor to God, and it's adoring him, it's thanking him, it's asking for all our needs, and it's a way of um, expressing our sorrow for sin and seeking to offer something that would please God um, more than my sins displease him, all right? If you think about it, the, those four things I just said, adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication, that's asking for our needs, and expressing our sorrow or contrition, there's a little acronym, ACTS, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, supplication. They're the same reasons why we pray, right? We pray to adore God, to thank Him, to ask for all our needs, and to say we're sorry for having offended. Sacrifice has the same purposes, but in sacrifice, Prayer happens, right? So prayer we can do in private, personally, or coming together. But it's something we principally do invisibly in our hearts. But sacrifice is something that the peoples of the world offer together as a community in a visible way. Is the book of Acts, is that, is that a, an acronym, Acts? No, no, I just, no. Okay. It works in English, but not in other languages. <laughs> yeah. So Acts just simply, it's the Acts meaning the, the deeds of the apostles. And so this is just a kind of cheat sheet a way to remember the four purposes of prayer. Um, and so um, sacri every, why do cultures of the world, except our own, offer sacrifices to God? And it's to, a, to do those four things, adoration, um, supp um, contrition, supplication, and thanksgiving, Thanksgiving supplication, um, in a way that we can do together and visibly with a sign of an outward sign of something that we're offering. And the outward sign in the peoples of the world was generally something like a lamb. The things that sustained human life, so a lamb, a bull, a goat, um, and the not, it would, might be the meat of it, but in a particular way, the blood, because the blood was for the Lord, because he's the life giver. Um, so blood was part of sacrifice and um, God's portion because blood stands for the life blood and God's the life giver. Anyways, it's a kind of metaphor, sacrifice, because the lamb, so a good example of this was the Jewish Passover. So Jesus instituted the, the Eucharist on the Jewish Passover. And do you know, what did, he, what did each family have to bring on the Passover? A lamb, right? Every family group. So in Ancient times, um, as in most traditional cultures, the family group is kind of the extended family. So a group of, say, 20, 15 to 20. Like Jesus and his apostles, that would have been 13. Um, and so every group, family group like that, came to Jerusalem with a lamb. 
And it was a pilgrimage feast. You couldn't celebrate. If you lived in Nazareth, you couldn't celebrate it in Nazareth. You had to bring your lamb to Jerusalem and have the lamb sacrificed in the temple. And what that meant was you, the, the lamb's neck would be cut and there would be a priest who would catch the blood in a basin and pour the blood on the altar. And that would be the sacrifice. The meat, though, you took back home. In other words, you, you didn't... Um, the blood of your lamb was poured out on the altar. But the rest of the lamb you brought to, your, to some place within Jerusalem. Um, and Jesus, we know, went with his apostles to the upper room within Jerusalem. And, um, and you roasted it that night and had to eat the whole lamb that night in your, by your family group. And that's a communion sacrifice. In other words, the blood is for God, but the meat was eaten by the family, right? And if you think about the Passover, Jewish Passover, if every family group had to bring a lamb, and every family group, wherever they lived in Israel, had to come to Jerusalem, all right, not everybody could if you had small children, but the men had to go, um, that's a lot of people and a lot of lambs and, I mean, and a lot of blood. It might be something like, we don't know the exact numbers, but it could be 20,000, 40,000 lambs on a given Passover in Jerusalem, all sacrificed in the same afternoon with all the blood of all those lambs poured out on the altar. The, Temple in Jerusalem had good aqueduct systems to, to take that blood and to have water. But um, yeah, so this, is, this would make an impression on your mind, right? And it would make a double impression that, wow, sin must be something serious if all of these lambs have to be sacrificed for sin, but yet the lamb's blood doesn't fully atone, right? Because you have to do the same thing. You need new lambs next year and new lambs another 40,000 the year after and another, etc. And... Um, and that makes sense, right? Because how can the blood of lambs and bulls and goats be more pleasing than sin is displeasing? All right, Jesus on Calvary offered the one perfect sacrifice of human history, offering himself, who's God, man, who offered himself out of perfect love for his Father and for us. And so that offering of his on Calvary is the perfect sacrifice because it really is more pleasing than all human sin put together is displeasing. So that was the one, does that make sense to everyone? The one perfect sacrifice because Jesus offered himself. He was the priest and he was the victim. He was the priest because he was offering himself. Not, I mean, he, obviously they were executioners, but they weren't the priest. And he freely offered himself. And he was the victim, obviously, who was offered. And, um, and so that's the one perfect, so with the new covenant in the church, right, the new covenant, covenant that Jesus established on Holy Thursday night has only one sacrifice. There are no other sacrifice. In other words, Judaism had lots and lots of sacrifice. There was the Passover, which was like the most abundant sacrifice. There was um, a lamb sacrificed every single morning and every single evening. There was um, double that on the Sabbath, um, 10 times that on other feasts. Um, and so Israel had many, and there were guilt offerings that you could bring, free will offerings, um, say a lamb. And Israel had tons of sacrifices. And the new covenant has only one, and it's Jesus's, his one perfect sacrifice. But we weren't there. And sacrifice is something that all should want to participate in because it's a way of showing, offering something to God more pleasing 
then our sins are displeasing. Jesus didn't want to leave us without a sacrifice. He didn't want to leave his church without a sacrifice. This is essentially what the Mass is. And the, again, the problem is few Catholics fully realize this. And it would change the way, I think, I hope, the way we go to Mass on Sunday, right? What am I doing in going to Mass? What was I doing this morning? I was going to Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary, made present here today, mysteriously. Why is, so I'll get in a minute to why it makes it present. So the Eucharist is the same sacrifice that he offered on Calvary, but different, same and different. Why is it the same? It's the same because Jesus himself is present on the altar. And when does that happen? All right, let me take a step back. When Jesus instituted the Eucharist, we said it was a Passover supper. All right, in a Passover supper, there's a lamb, right? That was, but that's not the only part of a Passover supper. Passover, Jewish Passover, involves um, unleavened bread. Right? So in every Jewish Passover, um, the, this is the task of the, the mother of the house. And it's to make sure that all the leaven is gone from the house. There's nothing, no um, bread or any other product made with leaven. And to have um, what they call matzah, which is unleavened bread. Um, and you eat that for seven days because Passover lasts for seven days. And so the Last Supper was the first night of, of the Passover, which would then go on for six more days of eating unleavened bread. Uh-huh. When, what does it celebrate? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, thank you. It celebrates, does anybody know? Yeah, the going out from Egypt. So it was, God ordered Moses to institute the Passover and before they went out from Egypt, the last night. So again, it was the last supper, but it was the last supper that they were in Egypt before they left to cross the Red Sea and to go out of Egypt. And so what they were, it was also the last plague, right? And so the, the plagues that, um, there were 10 plagues um, against Pharaoh and the Egyptians who were, Pharaoh was not letting them go, right? And this 10th plague was the worst, and it was the death of the firstborn of Egypt. And so Moses was told by God to have the, um, the Israelites celebrate the Passover, and that would be taking a lamb, sacrificing the lamb, putting the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. That was only done that first time. After that, as I said, the blood got poured out on the altar. But the first Passover, they put the blood on the doorposts in Egypt so that the angel of death would pass over their houses and spare the children of Israel when the children of Egypt, um, the firstborn, were, uh, died. All right, so that's, and so they were to eat it, um, the lamb, and also to keep seven days of unleavened bread um, in memory of their going out from Egypt in which they didn't have time for the bread to rise. So that's the reason for the unleavened bread, to remember the haste with which they left Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, I've been to a Shabbat dinner, not, uh -huh. not for Catholic, but uh -huh. regular Orthodox, and we were doing a soaking of bread at the challah and reading wine, which reminded me of yeah. the communion that we do in the Protestant church. Right. Yes, yes. Right. So 
any normal Shabbat, Shabbat is um, just Jewish for Sabbath, um, Hebrew for it, so it's a little often call it a Shabbat dinner, it's the same as a Sabbath dinner, um, Friday night. Um, if it's not Passover, they'll have leavened bread, so often a challah, um, and, and wine. And so that, it's just at the Passover, instead of leavened bread, it'll be unleavened bread. And so at the beginning of every Sabbath meal, and at the beginning of every Passover meal, there's a blessing over the bread and the wine. And the bread and the wine get distributed, right? So just like what you saw, except that at the Passover, it'll be unleavened bread. And so this is what, so Jesus, when, so this would have been normal, right? He would have taken the bread and broken it and distributed, just like what you saw, except unleavened bread. But he did something unusual, not unusual. He did something totally new. And that was, he said, this is my body, right, which will be given for you. And you hear that in every mass, right? The, the priest in the, what we call the consecration says those words of Jesus in his person. That's why he says, not his own pronoun, but Jesus' pronoun, this is my body given for you. All right, that, that was, um, the apostles must have been um, dumbfounded. They didn't, weren't expecting this. And Jesus is, first of all, he's truthful, right? So he's not going to say a lie. So if he says, this is my body, what should we think? It becomes his body. Um, but he's also God. And so he has the power to make one thing into another thing. The church has always understood those words from the beginning to be realistic, to take one thing, which was bread, and to make it into another thing, my body, his body. So th this is weird. Jesus was, right, he was standing or sitting there, and he, he um, was holding bread, and after, at the beginning of his words, it was bread in his hands, unleavened bread. At the end of this sentence, it was what he said it was, his body. And so he was holding his own body, and he distributed that to the disciples to eat, right? Because Passover supper, that's what the, right, the head of the household distributes the bread to all the members who eat it together. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I was taught, I was taught that you are supposed to do that. Um, and I'm making a literal translation. Uh, the Lord and God. But few people got me this. Oh, that's something you. Everyone can pray interiorly, but we don't say it out loud. But it's it's a beautiful thing. So that's what the um. Down, that's what Doubting Thomas said. Right when the week after, on the week after Easter Sunday, by um, Mercy Sunday, um, when um, he stuck his fingers right into Jesus' side, the risen Jesus, and he said, "My Lord and my God," right, and that's something that we can say in our hearts when we see Jesus elevated. Yeah, that's a beautiful, pious practice. Yeah. Where was I? Yeah. So, so we should think that Jesus that became his body. He prepared for this a year before, and that's John chapter 6. So John chapter 6 is one of the more difficult chapters in the Bible, right? and it's where Jesus um, 
First, he multiplied the loaves. So he, he was right, preaching in this deserted place. There were 5,000 uh, people there, and um, there was no place to buy bread or anything. And, right, and so he said to the disciples, well, you give them bread. And they said, well, we only have these five loaves. And so he broke the bread, passed it out, and it fed the 5,000. And they had 12 baskets left over. All right, that's what happened a year before the Last Supper. And that was the day before he then, so the next day, he used that as a kind of prop. In other words, that miracle of them distributing the bread to teach about some other bread that he was to give them. The bread he gave them that day was just ordinary bread that fed the body. But he said, so the next day, a big crowd follows him. This is in John 6. And he says, you're here for the wrong reason. Right? There's a big crowd following because the day before, they got a free lunch. And so they're back for another free lunch. And they had this idea that Jesus the Messiah was going to feed them every day. And so he says, you're here for the wrong reason. Don't seek the bread that fills the body, but that which nourishes the soul, in effect, is what, what he was saying there. Um, the bread that nourishes for everlasting life. And I will, the son of man, that's talking about himself, will give you that bread. All right, so they didn't, what are you talking about? And so then he goes on, he's talking about himself, right? He's talking about, he is the bread of life who comes down from heaven. <clears throat> Up to this point, you could take it, you know, kind of metaphorically, all right? He, his actions, his teaching is the bread of life. But then he made it very clear, no, what do I mean by what is the bread of life? My flesh is the blood of life. Unless you eat my flesh, and that would be bad enough, right? That seems like cannibalism. But then he made it even worse, and drink my blood. Well, not only that would be cannibalistic, right? But for Jews, that's like doubly terrible because the blood was for God alone. So in every, whenever they um, slaughter an animal just simply for, to, you know, for dinner, um, all the blood has to be poured out because that's God's portion in every animal. Um, so they can't have things like blood sausage. And, um, and that's why um, yeah, animals have to be slaughtered in a certain way, butchered, um, according to Jewish law. Um, all right, so the, a lot of disciples didn't know what he was, I mean, if we were there, we wouldn't know what he was talking about, right? And we would think that was, sounded pretty crazy, and you might get up and leave. And that's what the majority of his disciples did. They got up and left, and they said, this is a hard saying. And then Jesus looks at the apostles, are you going to go too? And Peter answers, no, Lord, to where should we go? You have the words of everlasting life. In other words, I think what he was saying is, Lord, I don't know what you're talking about, but I believe you because your words are truth, even if I don't understand what you're saying. That was a year before, and he didn't explain it. How he was, in other words, what he left unexplained was how was he going to give his flesh and his blood to us to eat in a way that wouldn't seem cannibalistic and abhorrent and absurd. And this is interesting. He left them in the dark for a whole year. And then at the Last Supper, it became clear, ah, he's giving us his body under the appearances of bread and giving us his blood under the appearances of wine in a way that human beings can receive. All right? So he didn't explain that before. So that's what's happening at the Last Supper. He took bread and he said, this is my body. And he made it into his body, but in such a way that it still had all the appearances. Thanks be to God. 
of bread. And he did the same after the Sabbath. So in the, every Jewish Sabbath, um, Passover, today at least, there are four cups of wine, two before the meal and two after the meal. And it seems that he took the third cup of wine right after the meal. So before the meal, he gave out the bread right, and said, this is my body, became his body. And then after the meal, he took the chalice of wine and said, this is the chalice of my blood the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, which will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Poured out for many. Right? Or you could say for the many. And it was poured out for this vast, huge multitude of human beings. Um, do this in remembrance of me. All right, so that's what he said at the, um, over the chalice. And so that's, that language is sacrificial. <clears throat> Sacrificial in the sense of blood poured out. What would Jews think of when they hear of blood poured out? The Passover, right? Think of those 40,000 lambs whose blood got poured out onto the altar for the forgiveness of sins. And what Jesus is saying is that um, what we receive in the Mass, his blood, I'm sorry, the, the wine, the, what appears to be wine, becomes his blood, the same blood poured out on Calvary. But fortunately, not appearing like blood, but appearing like what it was before, and wine. Tasting like wine, smelling like wine, and if you drink enough of the consecrated wine, it would make you drunk, just like wine. In other words, both the, the bread that's consecrated and the wine that's consecrated continue to appear just as they did before. But faith recognizes that something's happened. They've become his body and his blood. Why? Because he said so. And who is he? A mere man could say it and nothing would happen. But he's God and man. And he can take one thing and make it into another thing. Yeah, pretty surprising. So the answer is no, in the sense of, so the question is, what do you mean by that affirm? Um, is it a, do we have to believe in Eucharistic miracles? No. Do we have to believe that every Eucharist has a greater miracle? Yes. So the church doesn't require us to, I'll get to some examples of that in just a second. Um, the church, um, we don't have to believe in any particular miracle about the Eucharist, but we have to believe that in every Eucharist, and what appears to be bread, and really is bread at the beginning of Mass, has changed and has become something else, his body and blood. And that's a twofold miracle. Let me see if I can explain this. Not explain, but maybe say something about it. So there's a, what's the Catholic word that we use to describe this? Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. What does that mean? So trans, let's, I'm just going to put another S there so you can see the two parts. Um, trans is change, and substantiation comes from substance. Substance is a philosophical term for what is it. Um, what is it? Wood. All right? What is it? A human being. What is it? Hair, whatever. All right? 
Once, so what happened when Jesus says, this is my body, you had one substance, in other words, one nature, bread, that's become another nature, Jesus' own body. But, so that's the one miracle. But the second miracle is that the appearances of the first substance remain unchanged. So that all the appearance, so if you have, except, I'm going to leave now Eucharistic miracles out because they, they would be an exception. But in every other case, if you take, you know, a chemist, um, a doctor, any, you know, um, specialist in, in studying um, things under the microscope, it's going to appear exactly like any other piece of bread. But we believe it's not because of Jesus' words and because the church always understood it in that way. And here's where we have a huge difference with Protestants, right? Protestants have different positions on this. But the Protestant positions came 1,500 years later than the church's original position. So let's, I'm going to leave that aside for the moment. But just simply, many Protestants think it's just a symbol. Because that would be a lot easier, right? That, that would be like any other human thing, where I might say, you know, um, this shirt represents my body or something like that. Um, but I didn't, it didn't change. But the church never understood Jesus' words in that way, and especially at, in John 6, right? When Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh, you have no life, it would have made life a lot simpler for the disciples if he said, just a metaphor, sorry, just an image. I don't really mean that you can eat my flesh. He didn't say that, and they left, and he didn't call them back because they did actually rightly understood, they, they understood that he was really talking about his flesh and his blood. What they didn't understand was the second part of it, that it, it wasn't going to appear like cannibalism because the appearances of the bread and wine would remain. He didn't explain that yet. And they left too soon, right? A year too soon. And that's what we, we don't... There's a, there's a beautiful lesson in this. If, you know, doubts... Satan sometimes tempts us with doubts. And what should we do? Leave immediately when we have a doubt. No. Stick it out. Jesus will make it clear in the long run. Right? In every trial of faith, we shouldn't leave. Just as the apostles right, didn't leave, but many disciples tragically did. All right, so where was I? Trans so what trans the double miracle is one substance. So bread, we've got bread into body. Christ's body. But the unusual thing is that the, um, the substance of bread became the substance of his body, but the appearances of bread continue. What's this distinction between substance and appearances? All right, each one of us, this is common sense. Let's see if I can explain it. Each one of us is a human being. Right? But our appearances vary a lot. Right? So we share human being, humanity, but our appearances change all through our life. We're still the same person right? as we were when we were a fetus. But our appearances are vastly different. Right? Now we're five foot, maybe some of you are six feet. And, but when I was a fetus, I was not. And yet I'm the same individual human being. Right? Same as a baby, etc. And so our appearances are constantly changing, but our substance um, remains 
um, essentially the same. All right? So what, what we're distinguishing here, substance and appearances, sometimes you hear another word here, and that's accidents. That, that means the same as appearance. The accidents in philosophical language are what appear, what the eye sees. How it, so an appearance would be um, the color, the smell, the taste, its power to nourish, um, its texture, its size, its weight. So some of these accidents are quantifiable. So we call it, say, quantity is an accident. Quality is another accident. Um, that would be color and, and shape and so forth. Um, that remains the same. That's not changed. But substance is different than accidents or appearances because, as we just said, we're the same substance all through our life, but our accidents are changing constantly. Right? I get a haircut, whatever. I put on a costume. My appearances are changing, but I'm really the same. Right? And here it's the opposite. Right? So Jesus has done something exactly opposite. The appearances remain exactly the same, but the substance has radically changed from bread to Jesus. Now, I find it really helpful to ask the why question because it, it's hard to believe something that seems strange, we don't have any experience of, if, I don't, if it doesn't seem to make any sense. Why would Jesus want to do this? And it's to go back to Jesus the bridegroom. So let me go back a few slides. All right, forward a slide. And he wanted to be with us. And so he, in every mass, he's taking something that's here in our world, bread and wine, and he's making it into his body and blood so that he can be present here where we are. He's present upstairs, right? In this rectory, there's a chapel above us. Um, and Jesus is there in the tabernacle in his humanity. So I'm going to make a little distinction here. Jesus, is Jesus in this room? Yes, as God, because he says, wherever two or three of you are, I'll be in the midst of you. And he also is present wherever any being is present because he's, he's giving, um, all being comes from God. And if he were to stop upholding us, we would become nothing. All right, he's not going to stop upholding us. But um, that's to say that, not, that there's no place where God isn't there, okay? But Jesus isn't present in this room in his humanity. He's present in a representation of his humanity, Right, a sculpture of his humanity, but he's not present in the same way that we're present in this room with our bodies. All right? But in the tabernacle, he is. But not in a way that we can see him with our physical eyes. Faith believes it, what the eyes don't see. And that's why, yes, the Eucharist is not easy to believe. In fact, that's an understatement. And without grace, nobody can believe it. But God does give the grace for us to believe it, but it's helpful if we understand the why. So the why is threefold. The first why is so that he can be here in his humanity. So you might say, well, what difference does it make? If he's here in his divinity, why do I need his humanity? Yeah, exactly. He became man for a reason. He's died for us in his humanity, and it's proper to human beings to care. Imagine if I were to say to my wife, um, look, I don't mind if you go to Poland and, and live there. We can Zoom for the rest of our lives. That, that would be strange, right? Because there's something about being physically present to another human being. 
Um, and Jesus didn't want to just have a Zoom kind of presence to us. But to, I, that's the first reason. Second reason is has to do with the sacrifice. As, so as I was trying to say before, he, he died for us two, 1,990 years ago on Calvary. And we weren't there. He wants to give us the opportunity not just to be in his presence. That would be adoration. But that's not the mass. He wanted to give us the opportunity to offer him to his Father and to offer ourselves with him. This is tragically something that most Catholics don't fully, I think, get. But it's, it's dogma. In other words, it's something that we have to believe. But even more importantly, it's something that's beautiful to live because it means that I can offer the most beautiful thing in the world, Jesus Christ, to God and myself with him, even though my self-offering has got some uh, imperfections, some defects, some weakness. And, but Jesus, who loves us, right, wants our self-gift, even though it's not perfect. And he wants our self-gift together with his perfect self-gift. This is the second reason why he and makes himself present under the bread and wine so that we can offer him to his Father in every Mass. In other words, Jesus is really present on the altar in every Mass after the words of the priest, right? when we might say, my Lord, my God. But even more importantly, after saying, my Lord, my God, one thing that I think would be even more helpful is, Lord, I want to offer you myself, offer myself with you to God the Father. Make me Make me an offering that's pleasing to him, right? Because that's what it's really all about. All right, third reason, and this is maybe the easiest and most um, amazing, is that Jesus wanted to be present um, under the appearances of bread, with those appearances not changed at all, precisely so that we can take him into our bodies and receive his body in our bodies. That's a spousal kind of thing, right? That's what's proper to spouses, is to have a bodily union with their spouse and with nobody else. That's a sign of that unique intimacy of marriage. All right, but we don't receive the whole of our spouse, we can't. Jesus, though, is a perfect bridegroom and he gives us his whole self. And we receive his whole self into our bodies. Right? That's what Holy Communion is. And this is why you should long for Holy Communion, right, if you haven't yet received it, because it's receiving Jesus in his total self-gift in which he holds nothing back. And so we speak about it with four things. When we receive Jesus, we receive his body, his blood, his human soul, and his divinity. The whole, in other words, we receive the whole Jesus into our bodies, yeah. And so that's why he remains under the appearances of bread and wine. Right? Because the wine, same thing, right? Bread or wine. All right, so those appearances remain. And by the way, it's not important. Uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So far, so good? So this double miracle, bread becomes body, wine becomes blood, but the appearances of the bread and wine stay the same. Right? So that's what we have to believe. And that's what we mean by transubstantiation. 
How long does Jesus remain under those appearances? Until those appear, does anybody know? Yeah, so they, Jesus remains, so under the appearances of the, the bread and the wine that's been consecrated is, Jesus's, um, is Jesus, as long as those appearances remain unchanged or uncorrupted. All right, if we receive Jesus, so in a tabernacle, it might be some time, you know, it could be um, a considerable period of time. Just like we have bread, you know, in the cupboard, it's going to remain bread for some time, but eventually it'll stop being bread because it, it gets corrupted. Um, but in our stomachs, it happens a lot faster, right? So when we receive um, Holy Communion, we're going to have Jesus present in his body for as long as those appearances would remain visible, right? In other words, not yet broken down by my digestion. And as a rule of thumb, we say 10 minutes. I, I, I don't know that. Right? That's up to medical science. But um, more or less, for 10 minutes, each one of us is a tabernacle when we receive Holy Communion. In other words, we're, or better, maybe put it even more strongly, each one of us is like Mary after the Annunciation, right? Mary after the Annunciation, she had Jesus in her body, except that she had Jesus in her body continually for nine months, right, as he grew in her womb. We have him for 10 minutes, but that's not... That, that's pretty amazing, right? We, we're like Mary, except not for nine months, but just for 10 minutes. And so that's a, a time in which it's really good to pray and to thank him and to make acts of self-gift. That's why I was saying that's the best time to say, I offer myself back to you. In other words, it's, it's a spousal thing, right? Spousal love is supposed to be mutual self-gift. Right? That's what spouses are meant to do. Give themselves totally to one another. Jesus is our bridegroom. He's given himself totally to me in Holy Communion, so I need to give myself back. And it's a great time to maybe realize oh, there are some parts of my life where I'm not giving back. Well, I would like, please, Lord, strengthen me so I can give myself back more fully. That's a beautiful way to do Holy Communion. Right? He knows that we aren't perfectly giving ourselves back. And, um, and asking for, um, desiring greater intimacy is the best way to receive him. Basically, it goes like this. Everyone, everyone who receives Holy Communion receives Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. But if I receive him with more desire, his divinity is going to remain and transform me more. So even though everyone receives the same Jesus, not everyone gets changed if I receive him completely irreverently, let's say I'm in grave sin and I don't care about changing, I'm not going to get any grace at all. But I'm actually going to, that's going to be a kind of insult to Jesus. Not that he's, you know, but he's a lover. He's a jealous lover who wants our good. So that's why we shouldn't do that, right? So if, and we shouldn't receive communion if I'm aware of grave sin that I haven't yet repented of and um, had forgiven. In, in confession or by baptism. Um, but granted that that's the case, right? Suppose I don't have any major sins, but I have little ones. That, that's fine. I need to receive him precisely to strengthen me against those little ones. All right? So that's the reason. Everybody see the reason for the double miracle? He becomes really present out of love to feed us, to be with us, 
to sacrifice him, make his sacrifice present and to feed us. And he keeps the appearances so that we can receive him in a human way and not you know, repulsive and um, cannibalistically. So far, so good? Mm-hmm. I'll get to that in just a minute, but it's for purely practical reasons. Um, so in most places, they um, in the first, in early church for nine centuries, yes, um, communion was received under both species. That's a technical word. You, you'll hear this species, and it I mean sounds like you know species of turtle, eagle, something. But but it simply means under both appearances. So species is the Latin word for appearance. So when we speak under the species of wine, we mean under the appearance of wine, under the species of bread, under the appearance of bread. Okay? Um, but um, simply to avoid the spilling of the precious blood onto the floor. Sometimes it happens. When my, I just come into RCA, we're new Catholic, my first year, and I think it was a Christmas mass, one of the um, extraordinary ministers distributing Holy Communion um, tripped um, going down the stairs, or stumbled, and the precious blood spilled all onto the floor in, on the whole sanctuary. Um, and um, so that it was simply to avoid things like that, that the custom began of um, not distributing the, the precious blood to the faithful. Say the eighth, ninth, 10th centuries, and it, um, it was not universal, only in the Latin rite. The Eastern rite always has uh, distributed under both species. Um, there was a brief period after the Reformation when it was extended again um, for 40, 50 years, but um, then um, the church went back to the earlier practice of not giving the precious blood. And after the Second Vatican Council, it got extended again. But during COVID year, because of um, COVID practicality, um, it again got restricted in many parishes. And um, now some parishes do it and some don't. It doesn't, so here's the bottom line. It doesn't matter as far as the faithful are concerned. And the reason is, even though, so the bread becomes body, the blood, the wine becomes blood. But Jesus actually today can't be separated, his body and blood, his, and his soul and his divinity. So I'm just gonna, I'm, no, I'm pushing my luck here, but I'm gonna just imagine a thought experiment. Let's suppose on Holy Saturday, St. Peter had celebrated mass. All right, no mass was celebrated on Holy Saturday. But let's suppose, Holy Saturday, how Jesus is separated. His body's in the tomb. His blood is outside his body because, right, that's from, from his side, from his wounds in his hands and his feet, and from the flagellation. And his soul got separated from his body. That's what death is. So on Holy Saturday, Jesus' body, blood, and soul were separated. But his divinity was united to all three. On Easter Sunday, what happened? He rose from the dead taking that blood that was on the ground back into his body, his soul got reunited to his body, and of course his divinity had never been separated, and um, he will never be separated again in reality. So when we celebrate Mass today, when the priest says, this is my body, the words make his body directly present. But it's like if, you, if somebody were to drag me here, if you were to drag me across the room, I would, um, hopefully the rest of my body would go along with my arm, right? You wouldn't pull my arm off. And um, that's how it is with Jesus, that when the priest says, this is my body, it's like 
The words are directly pulling the body, but his blood is coming along and his soul and his divinity. And so if I just receive under the species of bread, what am I receiving? His body, his blood, his soul, and his divinity. If I just receive under the species of wine, what am I receiving? Body, blood, soul, and divinity. There's no difference. There's a difference, though, for the priest. The priest has to celebrate under both species. And that's for a different reason. That's because it's the body and the blood. All right, let me ask a different question. Why did Jesus institute the Eucharist under two species? He could have just said, just used bread that became his body, and that would have been enough, right? Or he could have just used wine that became his blood, and that would have been enough. But he chose both species. And the reason for this is because that represents his sacrifice, right? Think back to the Paschal lamb. On Passover, Jews bring a Paschal lamb to the Jerusalem. What happens? The throat gets cut. The blood gets separated from the body, and that's the sacrifice. Does that make sense? The sacrifice of a Paschal lamb is the separation of the blood from the body. And the same thing would be true for any bull or any other animal that gets sacrificed. All right, Jesus got sacrificed in Calvary, and the same thing happened. His blood got poured out from his body. And so the Mass represents that. Right? So in every Mass, his body and his blood are Here's, it may sound strange, but the theological language is sacramentally separated. Separated, that is, under sacred signs. So that the body is here and the blood is there. In reality, as I just explained, if we have his body here, his blood's going to be there too. But it, it represents what happened on Calvary when he actually died by his body and blood being physically separated. In other words, on Calvary, so here's, this is the difference between the Mass and Calvary. On Calvary, um, let's say, let me say what's the same. On Calvary and in, on the altar in Mass today, um, what's the same? Jesus is the right answer. Right. Okay, you know, that's the same. We've got the, the same Jesus was made present on the altar when the priest said, this is my body. The same body of Jesus, the same blood of Jesus, the same soul of Jesus, the same divinity of Jesus is on the altar today and in the tabernacle right this minute, as was nailed to the cross 1,990 years ago. We got the same Jesus. And he was the victim and the priest then. And today in every mass, he's the victim and the priest. All right, you might say, wait, no, Father, you know, Povis was the priest today. Well, that's the sacrament of holy orders. Enables somebody to act in the person of, of Jesus, in the person of Christ. That's what priesthood is. The sacrament of holy orders at the level of priest enables somebody to say Jesus' words in his person. In other words, enables Jesus to act as high priest. So in every mass, it's not principally Father Povis or Monsignor Breyer or any other priest. It's principally Jesus who's doing, um, what's, who, who's making happen what happens. In other words, he's the one saying, this is my body, and it becomes his body. He's the one who's offering himself, and he's the one who is offered. All right, so that's what's the same in every mass. And then something else is the same. The grace that he won for the world on Calvary, that same grace is being given here and now. That body that was nailed to the cross is the body that you will receive on the Easter vigil and that we receive, if, if, right, which I receive every day if I can go to mass every day. 
And again, we can't take it in. It's too big for us. So that's what's the same. What's different, though, is very simple. On Calvary, he died. And in the Mass today, he doesn't die anymore. Why doesn't he die? Because he rose once and for all. And he's got a resurrected, glorious body that can't be killed. And so in the Mass, we represent his death, but he doesn't really die in every Mass. He already did. But everything else is the same. So that's why another way to say this, on Calvary, it was a bloody sacrifice. In other words, with a real separation of body and blood. Today, it's the same Jesus being offered. It's the same sacrifice, essentially. But the mode of offering is different, not bloody, thanks be to God. We're not killing Jesus again. All right? So yes, same sacrifice, but a different mode. Unbloody is the way the Council of Trent put it. Unbloody as opposed to bloody. Or resulting in death, Calvary, not resulting in any death except hopefully our interior death to sin. Okay, questions on that? I know that's a lot to take in. <laughs> ah, yeah, thank you. Keep me on track. Um, because otherwise it wouldn't represent his death. right? Even though he's not actually dying in the Mass, he did that 1990 years ago. The Mass is representing that, and that's what sacraments do. Sacraments are sacred signs that represent and do what they represent. So the, the separation of the body and the blood under the appearance of bread and wine is absolutely essential for the sacrifice of Calvary to be made present on the altar under sacred signs, even though he's not actually dying again. And that's why it's um, severely prohibited by canon law for a priest to celebrate mass if he only has one of the, uh, if he only has bread and doesn't have wine, or the other way around. And he also has to receive under both species, the priest. We don't, though, because it's still representing his death, even if I don't receive it under both species. It's, for, in terms of the grace that we receive, it's absolutely the same whether we receive under one species, the other species, or both species. It's good to receive under both species. I'm not saying it's bad. It's good, but it's not giving us more grace. It's just representing Calvary. Okay? Is that? There were huge battles over this Reformation, but it's, it's really a kind of um, somewhat trivial thing because we're, it's the same, we're getting the same Jesus. No, it's not required, but you want to avoid, and the reason why we use those is so that um, you don't get crumbs, because every crumb would still be Jesus. And so just, it would make a big mess if there were visible crumbs all over the, I mean, it would be sacrilegious because I'd be stepping on Jesus visibly. There are always going to be some parts you can't do away with that, even you know, with the kinds of hosts that we use, but um, you want to avoid large visible crumbs being everywhere. So that's the reason for it. And it's, sometimes it comes up, some people are um, gluten intolerant, right? So there are low gluten hosts that people with celiacs can use. And if somebody can't even receive a low gluten host, because it would still be too much, um, they can receive under the appearances of, of the wine. They can receive the precious blood instead. You just want to tell the priest beforehand. On that? Mm -hmm. um, I've noticed in Catholic communion 
not just simply, I think it's because of the numbers of people at a Christmas mass. In other words, I think it's a purely practical thing. But in every mass, there's always got to be the wine that becomes his blood. Otherwise, it's not, it's, it won't make his sacrifice present. He'll still be present under the appearances of bread, but in that way, you can't do that because the Mass isn't only about giving us communion, but it's also about making his sacrifice, representing his sacrifice. All right, I get a ton more slides here. Let's see what I missed. Ah, this is just explaining what we already explained. Ah, one more thing. Yes, this is really important. So in Holy Communion, we all receive the same Jesus. And what is he doing for us when we receive him? He's feeding us with himself. In other words, Holy Communion makes us, nourishes us with his love. Right? This is, again, this is something way beyond us. Um, we can't actually, we might exhort, you know, a good sermon might exhort us to love one another, right? Just as Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, right? That's, he calls that the new commandment. But do I have the strength? Can I just say, oh, okay, I'm going to love all my neighbors and my spouse and my family as Jesus has loved me. But the fact is, right, Jesus loved me to the death, infinitely, perfectly, and I fall short, right? And I don't have that power. And sorry, you don't either. And therefore, Jesus into the Eucharist to nourish us with something that we don't have of ourselves, and that is supernatural love, divine love, to love like Jesus. All right, you might say, well, look, so many Catholics, you know, receive Jesus every week, and they're not transformed. Yes, it doesn't work by magic. Holy Communion really has the power to transform us into him, little by little, day by day. But he does it in a human way. In other words, Jesus is God, right? God made us. God knows our, our nature, and he knows that if it's not slow, it's not human. If it's not progressive, it's not human. And so the Eucharist nourishes us with his life week by week, and if we can, day by day. But not all at once, and zap, done forever. Once, um, right, once and for all. It doesn't work like that. And then secondly, think of the parable of the sower, right? Do you, great parable, right? Jesus um, is a sower. He sows the seed. Some of it falls on the road. Nothing happens. Some sows falls on rocky soil. It, something happens right away, but then stops because, right, of fear. And he sows it on thorns and thistles. Something happens right away, but it gets choked out. He sows it on good field and 30, comes up 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. So even on the good field, you've got to do The point of this parable is the seed is one and the same. I think of it, 100 people going down the communion line. Everyone receives the same seed, Jesus. But we're all different soils, and therefore, we're not going to have the same effects. It's not as, and we don't directly, I can't make myself just by myself into the good field. But I can ask him. I can desire. This is why desire is the most important disposition when we receive Jesus. Lord, I want to receive you more intimately. That means more personally. In other words, so many people, there are a lot of people who have left the Catholic Church, right? And, you know, they've gone into evangelical churches or just become a nun. None meaning no religion. Um, and it's so tragic. And very often you ask them, well, why did you stop going to Mass? And what might people say, do you think? I stopped 
getting anything out of it. What's wrong with that? Not a thing. Right? Holy communion isn't a thing. It's Jesus. It's a person. It's a person who loves us and died for us and wants, is our bridegroom. And we're like his bride who's um, oblivious to our bridegroom. And um, he wants our heart. He's, anyway, so the, that, and the, that's the first problem. It's not a thing. The second problem is it's a marriage. And so marriage involves a two-way street, right? And so marriage is mutual self-gift. So that means the more I give myself back to him, the more he's able to give me. And that means the more I'll be able to live his love during the week, and the more I try and live to his love during the week, that's what I bring in for my sacrifice. Right? So in other words, our, I think a lot of Catholics, we tend to, right, I stop going to Mass, I stop getting anything out of it. Because we forget that it's also about giving something. And the thing that Jesus is looking for is my heart and your heart. And that means our lives with their imperfections, right, as, as they came out of our heart. And he knows our good intentions, but he also knows that we're not entirely um, at one. And so that's where our desires for being more closely united with him. So the living Pope Benedict, the previous pope before Pope Francis, has a beautiful document on the Eucharist called the Sacrament of Love the, or the Sacrament of Charity. And he, the third part of it speaks about the Eucharistic life. How do I live Eucharistically? And it's bigger than just Sunday morning or whenever you, you know, go to Mass. It's to live Eucharistically is live the whole of my life in such a way that I can bring it and put it on the altar with its blemishes, with its flaws, and with my desire that they, that it be more, that I give myself back more fully. And that means that I love my neighbor more fully. And so the Eucharist is the sacrament also of fraternal love. He's feeding us in the power to love my neighbor, to love your neighbor, right, more. And that's what you offer on Sunday Mass, is principally our love for one another. That's what we're going to put on the altar, as it were, and that's what gets offered with him. Does that make sense? So the Eucharist has this purpose of binding the church together. And we're in, I mean, you don't need me to tell you this, but our society, it seems like, you know, very often, it gets radicalized and polarized and, and ever more divided. And the Eucharist is a divine means to, um, to do the opposite. In other words, sin divides. The Eucharist, like the church, is meant to unite. And what's so beautiful is that it has a power that is Jesus' love that's being communicated to us, but again, not magically. This is symbolized in the fact that the, the matter for the Eucharist, bread and wine, were made from many, right? So bread comes from many, many grains, right, that become one loaf. Wine comes from many, many grapes that become one child. That's a kind of metaphor or symbol of what Jesus' whole intention um, with the Eucharist is, is to bind us together um, more closely. And I pretty much run out of time. Oh, yeah, there are lots of names for this. Don't worry about it. Um, so the Eucharist, I have to tell you this, means, does anybody know? It's a Greek word for thanksgiving. Right? So again, it's, it's more than just thanksgiving. That was one of the four recent purposes of sacrifice. But thanksgiving is our way of living it. Right? In other words, a Eucharistic life means a life in which I'm bringing everything to the Eucharist.
right. The minister has to be a priest. And that's because I can't say those words. You can't say those words, right? I don't have the power to take one thing bread and make it into Jesus' body. Father Povis by himself doesn't either, but Jesus does. And that's why you need a priest who receives a sacrament, a special sacrament, holy orders, to be able to act in Jesus' person. This is why Protestants don't have the Eucharist. They think they do, but they don't have a valid Eucharist because you need a validly ordained priest. Eastern Orthodox do have that. They have validly ordained priests with apostolic succession. Eastern Orthodox Eucharists are always valid but as Catholic ones, but Protestant ones are not. Right? So that's why it doesn't make sense to go to a Protestant church on Sunday and receive communion because I'd just be receiving bread. Because that minister doesn't have the power. He didn't receive it from Jesus through a sacrament. And tragically, this is, we'll come back to that when we look at holy orders. And I better let you go. Right. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of the Eucharist. Help us to hunger and thirst for your gift of self in the Eucharist and evermore. Through Christ our Lord, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.